0: Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you today. It's always a privilege to be able to bring you God's word. You know, I've had several medical procedures throughout my lifetime, and for each one, I was nervous. And I think there's something normal when a person goes under the knife, that there's some fear, anxiety, and trepidation involved. But when you become a parent and your child needs surgery, well, that takes your anxiety to a whole other level. Our daughter, Joelle, when she was only a year and a half, had developed this eye condition that required surgery. And upon hearing the news, when my wife and I heard, well, there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of doubt. We prayed and hoped for the best for what laid ahead. And as we met with the eye specialist, Dr. Mehta, he was explaining the condition and the procedure involved. And he was explaining the years of experience, the decades of experience, and how he's done the same exact procedure over a thousand times. And he shared success story, after success story, after success story. And as he was sharing, my anxiety started to be alleviated and relief began to set in. Every single procedure he did met its desired outcome. And I found great security in his faithfulness and even started getting excited at the prospect that my daughter was going to get the care she needed. And fear, anxiety, and trepidation was all but gone because of this doctor's tremendous track record. And if you're like me, this past year has been extremely difficult and tumultuous, both generally speaking and deeply personal. Generally speaking, I see the social and political unrest. Breaks my heart to see this country continue to tear itself apart. Then you have the COVID pandemic, not only just the COVID pandemic, but the reaction to the COVID pandemic, further polarization. Next week will be a year since my father-in-law was killed in an accident. It could be tough to be optimistic about the future. Fear, anxiety, and uncertainty could rule the day. But as I consider history and reflect on the faithfulness of God, it gives me hope for the present. And as we look back together on how God has been faithful and how God keeps his covenant promises with his people, we could rejoice and praise him because great is his steadfast love towards us and his faithfulness endures forever. And because of God's tremendous track record, we could have our hope grounded in the God of history, which gives us purpose moving forward. As we represent the Lord our God to the world acting as his mouthpiece speaking on his behalf boldly proclaiming the gospel to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death there are three principles i want us to take away from this morning's text three principles one is to reflect two is rejoice three is represent so that's reflect rejoice and represent that we reflect on God's faithfulness throughout history, that we rejoice in God's faithfulness throughout history because he keeps his covenant promises with his people and has proven that his character is trustworthy. And finally, to represent, to proclaim the faithfulness of God and the character of God to the world as he unfolds human history. So, this morning in our text, we come to a time in Luke's gospel where the birth and naming of John the Baptist, which is another promise by God being fulfilled, showing that God will do what he says he will do. So, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And as you're turning there, we're going to start in verse 57 verse 57 let me summarize verse 57 and 66 to set the scene so now comes the birth of john elizabeth is giving birth to john and the news spreads quickly to relatives and friends and neighbors and they all gather and they're rejoicing they know this is directly god's mercy upon zachariah and elizabeth because it had been barren and now they're giving birth to a child and they're rejoicing the baby is born and they assume just like jewish custom he was going to be named after his father Yay, Zach Jr., right? Elizabeth says, no, his name's gonna be John, which was met with the collective, wait, what? John? No, nobody in your family has named John. Where is this coming from? Then they start playing Pictionary with Zachariah, which shows that he was not only mute, but he was also deaf. And it required him to write on a tablet saying, his name is John confirming that's indeed what he wanted. And then suddenly, miraculously, he was healed and silence is broken, which evokes fear in the crowd, which is a clear sign of something supernatural is happening, something transcendent is happening. The news spreads and everyone has this one question laid up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? And in the midst of this communal commotion, these extraordinary Extraordinary circumstances surrounding the the birth of John indicate something unique about John and his calling. So let us read the text in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father, but his mother answered said, "No, he shall be called John." And they said to her, "None of your relatives is called by this name." And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, "His name is John." And all wondered, and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loose, and he spoke, "Blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors, and all these were talked. About through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, "What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him." Oh man, what a crazy scene, this communal commotion, this pandemonium. I love it. I love it. Uh, so what's the significance of this name? Anyway, why is it so important His name be John? Well, John is a pretty common Jewish name, especially among priestly families, though, apparently not in Zachariah's family. And names often in the Bible uh, were chosen for their apparent meaning, especially as it relates to the circumstances surrounding the child's birth. So, John means God is gracious or God has been gracious. And Zechariah's prophecy of praise picks up on this theme. So, this announcement of this symbolic name by Gabriel superseded family tradition. And that, yes, in fact, God has been gracious to Zachariah and Elizabeth on a very personal level. But now he extends that grace to the entire nation of Israel, the people of Israel. There are two things I want to highlight in this text before we move on. Verse 67 when Zachariah or 64, excuse me, when Zachariah began to speak and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loose and he spoke, blessing God, praising God, rejoicing in God, showing that this is God's direct Intervention, which adds to the astonishment of the neighbors and sets the scene for the prophetic utterance which follows. And the restoration of Zechariah's speech marks a new beginning and a new era to what God is doing. And by naming his son John, Zechariah follows in faithful obedience and accepts and understands God's plan which he first doubted. And that restoration of speech leads to praise, but not only praise, but prophecy which we'll get into in a second. Second thing I wanted to highlight in this text is verse 65 when people were talking about all these things. So news travels quickly and it sets the stage and lays the foundation for John's ministry, which we'll explore more later in the book of Luke. I hope you're excited about this series and this book. So in short, The circumstances surrounding John's birth shows that he wasn't an ordinary member of the family and had a very unique calling upon his life. And now the narrative comes to a pause. And this pause promotes reflection in the events just described. It invites contemplation to take a moment of the phenomenon accompanying the arrival of this baby. This elderly couple, well beyond childbearing age, bears a child. And Zechariah gets miraculously healed from his deafness and dumbness, preparing the hearts of the people, asking the question, what then will this child be? And Zechariah's song draws time to a halt and answers that question. In verse 67, it says, And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, You know, I want to take a moment and and try to feel the weight of this verse with me. See, his silence was broken. When was the last prophecy you heard in Israel's history? Well, if you go all the way back to the Exodus, God liberated his people from suffering, slavery, and oppression out of the land of Egypt, and as they left Egypt, they plundered the Egyptians and sang songs of praise and hallelujah. Yet the Egyptians pursued them to kill them. And yet another miracle happens where God parted the Red Sea and they crossed safely across. Using that same Red Sea to crush the Egyptians, delivering his people out of the hand of his enemies. Then the establishment of the nation under theocracy, the giving of the commandments to Moses in Mount Sinai, the wandering in the wilderness, the entering into the promised land, the conquering of Jericho, the period of the judges, the rise of the monarchy, wicked king after wicked king after wicked king, the strife and turmoil in the house of David, which led to the split of the nation, subsequently to the captivity of the nation, the Assyrian captivity in the north and the Babylonian captivity in the south. And the people being carried away to a foreign land, a foreign nation, and a foreign culture on the brink of losing their ethnic and national identity. Then being allowed to return to their homeland to rebuild the walls and the temple to fall well short of its former glory. And through it all, God spoke to them by the prophets of old, whether it was Moses or or Samuel, the pre-exilic prophet, the post-exilic prophets, the prophets during the captivity. God spoke to his people, whether they were faithful or not, reminding them to repent, to come back, that he will gladly restore them, that he will preserve a remnant if they repent. And that he will keep his covenant promises. And he spoke to his people, whether his people were faithful to him or not. But then, silence. Silence. No more prophets. No more prophecies. And for 400 years there was silence. And 400 year passes. Generation after generation being born and dying, not receiving the promise of the Messiah. Not so much the utterance of the word of the Lord. Imagine the longing, the frustration, the doubt. If you've had a difficult year, multiply that by 400. But then, but then, Zechariah's healing comes the breaking of this silence. And Zechariah himself becomes this symbol, this personification of the silence during the intertestamental period. And the naming of his son John, in obedience and faith to God's command, Zechariah breaks his silence and he prophesies. And simultaneously, God breaks his silence of 400 years, inspiring Zechariah through the Holy Spirit to song and praise and prophecy. Yes, an angel spoke to Mary. Yes, an angel spoke to Zechariah and Elizabeth. But both were done privately. This was made public. This prophecy was made public. The pronouncement that God is silent no more. Do you feel the weight of verse 67 with me? The longing was over. The time has come. And as we read this prophecy of praise, notice, even though we are in the New Testament and Luke's gospel, it just feels so much like the Old Testament. No doubt, during the months of silence, Zechariah was reflecting that he reaches back in Israel's history and lays this groundwork for what's ahead, demonstrating God's impeccable track record of faithfulness. Which leads to our first point is to reflect Reflect, reflect specifically on the faithfulness of God. See, this doxology of praise reaches back in time. The words of the prophets, of the ancients, to Abraham, all revealing the character of God and the purpose of God. This attempt to root current events in Israel's past and using this old, rich, Old Testament imagery reminds the people that the Lord's faithfulness endures forever. And in verse 68 through 75, we have, General terms of God's fulfillment, what God has done and what he's achieved in the past. And then Zechariah switches from verse 76 to 79 and becomes very specific, moving from what God has done to what God is now doing. John's specific role as the prophet of the Most High, raising up John. John's role is again described as the forerunner of God's salvation as he prepares the people for the true dawn that is coming. Read with me, please, in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant that the oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the most high and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. Whoa! What a prophecy. I feel like I, I need to take a moment to explain to you what a, what a chiasm is. Uh, a chiasm is, is a literary device that uses grammar and concepts that repeats them in reverse order and emphasizes the middle of the text. So don't think linearly, but think circularly. Now, some of you might think, man, Junior is busting out a chiastic structure in a Sunday morning service? What is this, Biola? Well, don't you want your churches to give top-notch Bible education? I'm giving you this stuff with no additional charge, okay? So, this is good stuff here. Let me demonstrate in the text. Let's read it together. So, verse 68, or excuse me, no, let, let me let me back up here. So, if, if you didn't get that, so think of a sandwich. Think of a sandwich, right? Um, nobody emphasizes the bread of the sandwich, although it is important, right? But nobody goes around saying, uh, oh, you know, I'm, I, I had a sourdough sandwich or I had a wheat sandwich. You know, you start talking like that. People might think you're on something. Like, well, sourdough sandwich. No, you emphasize what's in the middle, right? So there's a big difference between a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and, say, a Philly cheesesteak sandwich, right? You know, one of the things on my bucket list, which I haven't written yet, is to have an authentic Philly cheesesteak sandwich in Philadelphia. That's what, one of the things, if I ever, ever get to writing that list. Okay, so now... Um, let's look at the text. Uh, verse 68 Blessed be the Lord of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Skip down to verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Notice this verb visit acts as a bookend to this whole unit. And it's going to start closing in on itself, to, uh, folding in on the middle. Verse 69 and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Skip down to verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Back up to verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we, or excuse me, skip down to verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the most high. Back up to verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies. Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. And here in the middle where it corresponds right next to each other, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So the emphasis in this whole text is our Father. So yes, there are extraordinary circumstances surrounding John's birth, which signals that God is transcendent, powerful, and almighty. But he's also the God of our fathers. And he's the God of history. And the God of history is personal, engaged, intimate, continuously, and actively involved in all creation and in the affairs of his people. He not only created the heavens and the earth, but he's here and he's among us. He not only created the stars in the heavens, but he gave them all names. And this awesome God, the God of history, makes covenant promises with his people and he fulfills them. And this track record of faithfulness in the past, we could then rejoice and be comforted in the present despite what our circumstances may say. So our reflection leads to rejoicing. Second point, we rejoice. We rejoice. This is the God we serve. This is the God who's made promises to us Yes, in verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and redeemed his people. Skip to verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. See, this verb here, visit, refers to God's actions in saving and helping his people. See, the same verb is later used in Luke, uh, in chapter 7, verse 16, and it reads, "Jesus raised while Jesus raising a widow's son, it says, Fear sees them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. See, this idea that God has visited and redeemed his people is alluding back to the Exodus, where God delivered the nation of Israel with a mighty hand out of the land of Egypt. And Zechariah talks about God bringing about or brought about redemption and looks past in the memory of God's fidelity and power, and he begins to celebrate, realizing the victory that has been unfolded and yet to be unfolded. So this inaugurated eschatology, that there are both an already and not yet aspects of the kingdom of God. And from Zachariah's perspective, this already aspect of the kingdom, that God has delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. And the not yet aspect of the kingdom for Zechariah was Christ's first coming. But from our perspective, the already aspect of this kingdom, Christ has come. His earthly life and ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection and his, his, and his ascension has been completed. And as we wait for him to visit us on high from our perspective, it's the second coming of Christ. So he rejoices by reflecting on the God of history and his victories. And what manner is he coming? Well, in verse 69, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. See, this idea of horn, I actually thought it was a horn that you blow when I first read it, but it's not. It's an actual horn of an animal, specifically of an ox. So he's coming, this sign of strength, sign of strength and ability to complete his mission, to complete his promises. And Zechariah goes on in God's activity in raising up this Davidic horn for the nation, this praise that describes the coming of this Davidic ruler and elaborates ultimately Jesus becoming that person, fulfilling the promise of the covenant. Listen to how the Old Testament uses this imagery. For surely your enemies, Lord, surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured on me. Psalm 92, 9 and 10. David, after being delivered from Saul, as Saul was trying to kill him, David says this. David spoke to the Lord in the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold, my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. First Samuel 22, 1 through 3. Later, David takes this same verse and writes it in Psalm eighteen two. Listen to the Song of Ascent. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on his crown will shine. Psalm 132, 17 and 18. See, God's aim in raising up this horn of salvation isn't merely to liberate an oppressed people, but to create a holy and righteous people who live fearless lives because they trust him, for he has conquered fear and unrighteousness. He is gathering himself a people who are fearless and righteous to proclaim the gospel because he's conquered fear. And this idea of strength may be very different than what we commonly think of as strength. This horn of salvation was also displayed in the humility of Christ when he laid down his life and died on the cross for our sins, subverting our idea of what we might think strength may look like. This strength was willful obedience and acts of service, which included washing people's feet and feeding the hungry. Oh, but don't take humility to mean to simply roll over to acquiesce to the demands of the world no strength was also displayed in bold proclamation with no regard for consequence and it also included kicking down the gates of hell so let's be holistic in our understanding of biblical strength and not be unbalanced so here Zechariah's prophecy also firmly grounded in this interplay between past and present in practically every clause of this prophecy And what John will become could only be appreciated against this backdrop from what God has been doing up to this point and what God has begun to do. Calling John, his human agent, to be the prophet of the Most High. Answering the question in verse 66, what then will this child be? Well, third and final point, well, to represent. Represent the Lord. And in verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, Skip to verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. And you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. So, speaking of John Baptist, it was necessary for him to be the forerunner of Christ, to summon people to the realization of their guilt and to confess their sins, to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of Christ. And, John, and God's calling on John's life was given to him before birth. And John, the last of the Old Testament, Old Testament prophets, was the greatest among the prophets, as the Bible described. For he was the only prophet to ever witness the actual coming of the Messiah. And he even baptized Jesus himself. What an amazing calling. Nobody else in history could ever say that. But guess what? John's role as prophet is now our role too. Well, what is a prophet? If you think of a priest, a priest represents the people before God. A prophet represents God before the people. A prophet represents God, is appointed by God, communicates the truth of God, reveals God's will and his character. He's a mouthpiece. For God, given authority to speak the truth, to confront people, to sound the alarm, to call people to repentance, to to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide their feet in the way of peace. Oh, I'm sure you've heard Christians being called heirs of God or co-heirs of Christ. And because of that, we've received the inheritance of God and all these blessings that come with it. But did you also know that we're called heirs of the prophets? So, Peter, preaching in the book of Acts, says, Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets have spoken and have foretold of these days, and you are heirs of the prophets and the covenant God made with your fathers. Acts 3 24 and 25, NIV translation. So, yes, we've inherited the blessing of, of God. But we've also inherited the message of the prophets. And we're responsible to continue to represent God to the world, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, giving the answers, and making sense of this broken world. darkness see the root cause of all this evil in the world both individually and institutionally is because people love darkness rather than light and if you want society to change we must speak the truth because eventually salvation changes society there could be no social transformation without spiritual regeneration and salvation begins with the holy spirit changing the hearts of sinners But that doesn't mean we don't advocate for social change or justice or support policies that promote promote human flourishing or obstructing the policies that don't. We certainly do those things, and those things are important. But primarily, as a people of God, we are to give knowledge of salvation to people for the forgiveness of their sins. Because people, they're dead in their trespasses and sins. They're walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sense of disobedience. And we too lived in the same manner and by nature were children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he's loved us, even though when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ, for by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing kindness and riches of his grace towards those in christ jesus and if we don't proclaim god's word well there's going to be a vacuum which will be filled with worldly ideologies you think of the sexual revolution cultural marxism critical race theory that permeates every public and private institution in our culture See, if we don't declare the supremacy, of, the supremacy of Christ, that it's worth giving our lives for, well, people will give their lives to other causes and other beliefs that are holy and completely incompatible with biblical Christianity. See, a way God remains faithful is that he raises up messengers and representatives like the prophets of old to point to spiritual redemption and the path through darkness and into light. And how should we represent God? In what manner should we represent God? Well, primarily two ways in this text. In verse 74, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before all our days. See, this holiness and righteousness is a moral quality that we should have as Christians. If we're going to represent God as we ought, we need to have the moral character and integrity that gives our words meaning and weight. We must live what we believe. And finally, without fear, without fear, you know, a few weeks ago, I shared uh, stories about my mom, Penny, and how fearless she was uh, proclaiming the gospel. And many of you were blessed. Many of you came up and, and spoke to me afterwards. Thank you for that. I love talking about my mom. Well, here's another story. So uh, we were in Thailand, and she arranged this uh, uh, a tour that we were taking. It was a tour band and, van, and we were picking up all these different people uh, at different spots, and we were one of the first ones that were picked up, and there she had her, her gospel tracts all translated in Thai, her Thai Bible ready to go, and we get the first picked up. We sit down. There's two other people that got picked up, and she hands them this gospel track. I don't know how she did it, but she went through the whole Romans road as they were walking toward to their seat, and then she turns to me and says, Junior, we're in Thailand. Why aren't you preaching the gospel? And I said, Ma, can I put on my seatbelt? Like, I'm just getting my seatbelt in. Good grief. You know, and there's countless stories of my mom. You know, I think, you know, some people have even said, you know, Junior, I'm not like your mom. I'm not bold like that. I can't share the gospel so naturally. It just seems to to flow out of her life so naturally. It's not waiting for this strategic moment in the conversation. It just comes out. I'm not like that. I feel like I can't do that. Well, to you, I say this, Uh, I'm not like that either. You know, she's my mom. Imagine living up to that legacy. You know, the, the few short years of her life as a Christian, at the end of her life, she probably shared the gospel, led more people to Christ in my entire Christian life. But you know, this past year, probably invited more people to church and show the gospel than in previous other years. And I don't say that to boast. I say that in conviction because it took a global pandemic to get me in gear, to get me motivated, to look at life through redemptive eyes grounded in the character of God, to see the unrest, the polarization, the madness, not as merely misfortune and tragedy, but opportunity, opportunity to give light to those in darkness. Guys, this season is ripe for evangelism. And if you struggle with timidity, like I do, well, start with something manageable, like inviting somebody to church. You know, when I reconnect with old high school friends who have since become Christians, I always say, oh, tell me your story, please. How did you become a Christian? The most common thing I hear, someone invited me to church, heard the gospel, gave my life to Christ, my life's never been the same since. It's the most common thing I hear. So we have this opportunity as representatives of God, not only to be witnesses, but also the means by which God brings dead souls to life. The means by which God delivers people from the domain of darkness and transfers them to the kingdom of his beloved son. And seeing salvation history and how God's delivered his people out of the the land of Egypt, and the rest of human history and the coming of Christ, we could be active participants of God's unfolding of eternity. You still don't believe me. Let me close with this. So David Mars, uh, we were friends at Biola University when we were undergraduates together, and we uh, were in the same men's discipleship group. He shares an email his father received from an old friend. His father, Ron Mars, while attending college, led a Bible study, invited his friend Kevin each and every week. And his friend Kevin never showed up. Years later, they reconnect over email. Kevin Horner emails Ron Mars this. After exchanging some pleasantries, he says, now to my personal testimony. If I recall correctly, I was a freshman at Theta Chi when I met you. I had to move from Eugene, from Roseburg, oregon and had gotten caught up in the fast pace of university living i can't remember the exact sequence of events but i do remember that you were a christian that actively lived and shared your faith with others around you i remember that you had a bible study may have been on wednesday nights that you invited me to every week i never attended the bible study but your faithfulness in extending that invitation to me each and every week played a significant role in my future journey The first years of U of O were not easy for me socially or academically. I felt socially awkward, academically challenged, and totally inept. Like many young people, I tried to find peace in parties and wildness and rebellion. And like many young people, I was on the verge of emotional and spiritual collapse, desperately seeking hope for the future, but only finding a sense of alienation, anxiety, and despair. And as we later come to realize, those weekly invitations to Bible study were a lifeline for me during a very troubled time. Here's what developed and how the Lord used your ministry. I committed my life to Christ, February 14, 1891. Since that time, the Lord has patiently brought me along my spiritual development. I now serve as an elder in my local church. He has provided godly men to walk alongside me during my journey and they helped me recognize that I had a gift for teaching and preaching and communicating. They encouraged me in the area of ministry and the Lord gave me an opportunity to develop and apply that gift. He has sent me to share the word in Brazil and India and to speak at youth conferences in Canada, to share the word through teaching and preaching in our local fellowship on a regular basis. In addition to that, he has given me a leadership development ministry to work in called the Leadership Equity Project that focuses on providing leadership counsel and development to leaders that are in time of personal crisis or challenge. Many times, Ron, I've used the opportunity to use the lifeline story in my teaching about how a simple act of faith, practice with humility and persistence can have a dramatic impact in someone's life. I thank the Lord for his grace in my life during those days and for keeping a committed man of God before me to be a much-needed beacon of hope during very dark days. My conclusion is that Even in my rebellion, the Lord was always before me, waiting for me to turn back to him, to find the peace that I was so desperately seeking. Man, imagine getting that email. You know, you may feel that God might be personally silent towards you and, and you wanting clarity, something in your life, but know this, that God has given his fully revealed word and his divine power has granted us all things through life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. See, this fully revealed word to us is a physical representation that he will never be silent again. And he has promised us that he will never leave us or forsake us and he promises us that he will come back. And take his bride. And as we represent God as modern prophets and await for se- Christ's second coming, remember that Zachariah was forced into silence because of unbelief. Let us who profess to believe not be voluntarily silent because there's darkness to be conquered. Let's seize the moment and conquer it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for who you are and that you are God of history and that you're here among us doing a work May we live fearless and holy lives proclaiming who you are to the world. And it's in the name of the prophets who have proclaimed you throughout the centuries. Amen.